Welcome to the Pink Smoke Podcast. I am Tequila. I am joined by my partner, Chance Boudreaux. And here, our rice is like family. This is a very special episode today, isn't it, John? Very special. Um, what one one very about? deep close to my heart, I would say. Yeah, yeah. We're going to be talking about John Woo's Hard Boiled. And I think John Woo in kind of a general way as well is how it's going to end up shaking out. But um, I had been, I, I think I was the impetus for this episode. I, I've been uh, very uh, ill recently and I'm recovering from that. I actually just got the great news yesterday, John, that my treatment and recovery isn't going to be done in July, but will need to be extended through October. Isn't that wonderful that I'm not oh. done with this shit yet? That You're I not going to be able to go out trick-or-treating. That's awful. Uh, I've, it should be done right before trick-or-treating. Going out trick-or-treating might be the first thing I do. Uh, it prevents me from getting the vaccine, prevents me from going out and about in the world. Steps give me a very hard time. But I had been feeling a little, um, uh, is nostalgic the world? We're, is nostalgic the word? Retrospective. And I said, can we talk about a movie uh, that, I haven't seen in a very long time. It's probably been 20 years since I've seen this movie, but really meant a huge amount to me when I was in high school and was one of like the turning point movies for my life. And I know that you also were a big, I think of you even still when I first met you in college, where I knew you as like somebody who knew more than anyone I knew about heroic bloodshed movies. I can go through like my history with John Woo in a little bit, but tell me about yours. Cause I'm not, I, I suspect it's probably pretty similar to mine, the way you yeah. got into John Woo. I think that's a good idea because as the criterion translation of the killer quotes, nostalgia is a saving grace. So <laughs> this was, Obviously, Hong Kong cinema and heroic bloodshed in general were a huge gateway for me. The way I found out about it was I love the Evil Dead movies. And the very first time I visited New York City when I was in high school, we, all, we had just gone to see Stomp because that's what outsiders do when they go to New York City. And so we were in the East Village and we went to St. Mark's Comic Shop, which uh, closed down and is now reopening again, which is great news. Oh, that's great. I so didn't we, know it was reopening. It is. Yeah, I think in a new location. So uh, we went in and I found the three Army of Darkness comic adaptations, which were impossible to find in Northern Virginia. But here I am. I'm like, New York City can do anything. You walk into a comic shop and there they are right there. So I, I found them, took them home. I read them. And in the back of these issues were interviews with Bruce Campbell. And at one point they asked Bruce Campbell, so tell us what's, uh, you know, what's uh, Sam Raimi up to? What's his next project? And he said, oh, Sam is bringing John Woo, the great Hong Kong director, over to America. And he's producing his first film, Hard Target. And uh, he goes on to say, I think the kill, he says something like the killer is probably the best action movie ever made. And of course, I immediately wanted to see the killer. And I did. And he was right. It was the best action movie I had ever seen. And from that point, I just needed to see as many of these films as possible. And it was, you know, at the height of its popularity, you know, the early nineties, uh, right. When John Woo was coming over to do hard targets. So obviously it was, <laughs> it was like crack for a guy like me who loved action movies, but was also interested in this kind of artier sort of style of cinema. And it was a great way to get my friends into international films because they could appreciate, you know, the shoot 'em up aspect of these films while also the circian kind of melodrama that, John Woo was bringing to these things and they could Especially watch a movie in with the subtitles killer. Now. Yeah. 
Yeah. The and it was, a, it, it was popular enough that you could get, you had access to these movies, to movies like The Killer and A Better Tomorrow. Um, and, you know, a lot of them obviously you had to get as bootlegs, but the John Woo ones at least were very accessible for everybody. So it was a, it was a good time to be a fan of this sort of thing. Not only that, but the first time I ever wanted a, a laser disc player, because this is years before DVD, was because uh, Criterion released Hard Boiled as yeah. a laser disc. And I wanted to have this giant platter sized, you know, disc to kind of differentiate me from like the casual movie fan to say, I want to watch this the right way, this gigantic saucer sized disc. Uh, and that, so that was a huge, huge opening for me to not only appreciate Hong Kong cinema specifically, but international cinema in general and art cinema as well. What about you? Um, I saw it because of Dave's World. You know the sitcom Dave's World. <laughs> sure, you sure. familiar with it? Great Harry Anderson playing yes. a uh, a newspaper humorist based on Dave Barry. Uh, and there was a this is like probably right around 1992, same time. There was a joke where he was going to the movie theater with his wife, and she wanted to watch like Steel Magnolias, and he wanted to watch Reservoir Dogs, right? And I was 13 years old and I was like, what's Reservoir Dogs? I've never heard of this thing in my entire life. So I went to the video store and I rented Reservoir Dogs like a lot of teenagers in 92, 93 and was like, oh my God, this is, this is the most uh, best and original movie I've ever seen. Why there's <laughs> nothing like this film, you know, uh, kind of thing. And very quickly, I was like, I have to find out everything about this director. I have to watch True Romance, which I hadn't seen because I thought it looked dumb and, and all of this other stuff. And very quickly, what I learned was when you read the film magazines, you know, there's that famous, um, I think it was in Film Threat, the article, the Who Do You Think You're Fooling, which is about how much of Reservoir Dogs is taken from City on Fire. Now at the time, it's different to understand Tarantino, I feel like nowadays, where everybody has access to everything. So if somebody says he took this from Lady Snowblood in five minutes, you can go on the internet and confirm, yes, he did take this from Lady Snowblood. The accusation that he had stolen a huge part of his movie from City on Fire, Ringo Lamb's film, was very shocking and also very impossible to prove. And since I was a partisan on his side, I was like, I don't believe that to be true. I got to seek this movie out. And see it. And so I lived in, like you, I lived in, in uh, a place that did not have access to a lot of things. I lived in Southern Chester County, Pennsylvania, very much farm country. In fact, you know, I always contextualize it by there was so little stuff around where we lived. When I needed to go to the DMV, I had to drive up into Amish country. Like Amish country was actually more developed than where I lived. <laughs> more metropolitan, you know, the Amish actually had more, there was like a, a mall there, you know, a strip mall in Amish country, you know. It wasn't just fancier carriages. Exactly. There was actually, you know, that kind of thing. And, uh, and but I went to the, I drove down to the, the college town near where I lived in uh, Newark, Delaware, the University of Delaware. And there was a nice little college video store down there called Video Paradiso. And I was like, I want to see City on Fire. And the guy who, the clerk there, who was very much what you would picture a snooty video clerk, but was being like, you don't want to see City on Fire. You want to see this. And he pointed to the poster of the killer, which I was immediately hooked because it had the tagline, one corrupt cop, one vicious hitman, 10,000 bullets. And I was like, holy shit, you are right. I do, in fact, need to see this movie. 
And I also got City on Fire just to check. And it was funny. It was a, it was a bootleg. This place had a lot of bootlegs. Had this purple cover wrapped around it that just said City on Fire on the front and then had some English translation of some plot synopsis on the back that was nonsensical. And I was like, I can't tell by looking at this box what it has to do with Reservoir Dogs, you know? And, uh, and I watched it and I was like you, like the killer is amazing. Uh, this is really fantastic. This is nothing like American action movies. I feel like this is like um, completely changing my life and Hard Target was coming out around the same time. So I saw Hard Target too and I was immediately a John Woo fan. And when I saw Hard Boiled, like um, shortly thereafter, I immediately, you know, you're a kid. So you go and you rent everything and like, in like four weeks, I went from not having heard of John Woo to having seen 10 John Woo movies. You know what I mean? There probably weren't oh, yeah. 10 at this point, six or seven at that point. I went from not, not having heard of him to an expert in John Woo very, very fast. And hard-boiled, my reaction was, this is, not that this is the greatest action movie ever made. This is like a quantum leap forward from what I understand action movies to be. And to contextualize a lot of the 80s, you know, there were great action movies in the 80s like uh, like Terminator and Die Hard, but a lot of them were super crummy. A lot of them were like Delta Force or Mitching in Action, which was just a shot of the hero standing with a machine gun sort of spraying it around and then cut to like a hut exploding and a guy jumping out. And it's like three minutes of the, you know, hour and a half runtime and there's just uh, they're just so boring like so american 80s action movies a lot of them are intensely boring uh, especially the shooting based ones and it's at the same time that i'm getting into john woo of course i discovered jackie chan who just puts all american action cinema to shame in terms of like his kineticism and all of that sort of thing and just basically you know this video store was good but it was not comprehensive so like you there was a lot of stuff that i was hearing about and not able to see there were a lot of things that was like you've got to check out jet lee and i couldn't i couldn't see a jet lee movie till i went to college and then mike morona tv's big pete had a copy of uh, fist of legend and that was the first Jet Li movie I ever saw. And that was like, well, this is the best action movie I've ever seen now. You know, that kind of thing. But I do think Hard Boiled is like such a jump forward. It felt like, uh, like just from another planet of action cinema and intensity and fun and violence and creativity. It just felt so far beyond like anything I'd seen. I really liked The Killer a lot, you know? And I think that at the time... The Killer was like the consensus greatest action movie ever made. That if you yeah. ask people in the mid-90s, it was like, it is The Killer. And I watched it again to do this podcast episode also. I hadn't watched either of these in 20 years. And it's yeah, really, either. really great. And it's really, really slick. Um, but I wouldn't say it's the quantum leap past all other action cinema. Because the other thing about Hard Boiled, not only does it sort of leave the American stuff behind and enter sort of push American action cinema when he comes to Hollywood and, and Yen Ping come to Hollywood that sort of causes action cinema to take that great leap forward in the late 90s where like Hollywood resources are combined with Hong Kong uh, creativity, you know? It, it, Hard Boiled also left Hong Kong action cinema behind. The killer is easy to contextualize in the context of other good um, uh, uh, Hong Kong action cinema. It belongs to the heroic bloodshed genre. It's not so different from like 
city on fire or um, the full contact, full you contact. know? <laughs> yeah, it's not so different from them, you know? But hard-boiled is. Hard-boiled still is almost like nothing you've ever seen. I would say it belongs to uh, a tradition. It kicks off the tradition of movies like Night Comes For Us or SPL2 that mm. that aren't so much movies as an attempt to push action cinema as far as it can go. Yeah. You know what I mean? Well, the before we to... dig right into the movie, yeah. though, let me just to contextualize it yeah, just yeah. a little bit more. Because when you look at it, even though there were balletic action operas like these being made in Hong Kong and they're you know before the killer and they're still being made today, the time that John Woo was making them, roughly 86 to 92, yeah, seems like it's cultural moment, right? I mean, yeah. he and Ringo Lam and Sui Hark leaving for Hollywood marks the transition away from that popularity so that hard-boiled always felt to me like the end of that era, you know, yeah. compared with full contact, which came out the same year. That Those whole were year. like the culminating like moment of that huge, that huge whole wave. year, because once upon a time in China too, also comes out and swordsman too, which are all like the height of <sighs> something like I that. Swordsman too. So <laughs> swordsman too is my favorite. You wish and um, super cop police story three is also 92. So that's also like everything kind of, gets to their highest level in some ways right there. You know, I'm not sure that, that, uh, that police story three is Jackie Chan's highest Hong Kong level, but uh, the others are like once upon a time in China two is, is, or swordsman is uh Chewy Hark's highest. It's gotta be one of those two. And full contact is Ringo Lamb's best in sort of, of the, the other guys, you know, I think of Ringo Lamb is there's like the big Hong Kong guys, like Chewy Hark and Jackie Chan, uh, Jackie Chan and uh, and uh, John Woo, and then there's like the other guys who probably aren't as good, but Ringo Lamb they they brought some really excellent stuff too, and it's and it's the height of that as well. Yeah, the the height and culmination. I mean, it feels yes. like you can't go past hard boiled and and full contact. You know, like that is the highest you can possibly take something like this, and anything else is just going to kind of be uh, diminishing returns. You know, so it made sense that instead of, you know, staying in Hong Kong and maybe like kind of slowly sinking into self-parody, them coming over to America and trying to infuse American action movies, which itself, you know, kind of at the end of the decade, you know, becomes the Matrix, right? With Yen, Yen Wu-Ping doing the Matrix. Yeah, and then American everything is the Matrix. Going to be, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's just going to be uh, this Asian-influenced uh, balletic violence and, and, and amazing set pieces. Hyper stylized, massive body counts. You know, it's, it's funny too. It's easy to lose context of these movies were seen as insanely violent at the time. And I think they still are, but you have, you know, in the late nineties or late eighties and early nineties, you have like jokes in last action here where Schwarzenegger is joking about the body count in his movie where he's like, you know, I, there's, I, we did much better this time. Only 45 people died in this movie when 86 died in the last one. Right. And those numbers were seen as being big enough to be jokes. Right. But that's like a scene in hard boiled, you know, like that's, <laughs> yeah. That's like their, their joke numbers are like one of these action shootout kind of numbers. <laughs> and that was the other thing is, is sort of the, the violence of American action cinema of Stallone and Schwarzenegger and Willis was, was controversial in the United States. And these were just so far beyond that. These were movies that were like really taboo in some ways. These, these movies had every bit of the cultural cachet of 
Evil Dead 2 as being like some over the top thing, you know, mm -hmm. that these really were seen as being like, you know, this is too much, you know. And yeah. And at the same time, looking at it as too excessive is looking at it the wrong way. These yeah. John Woo films are musicals, right? Yeah. The action scenes are, you know, it's, it's chorus members, you know, rushing in that scene, the killer where everyone is wearing white, you know, everyone's wearing the yeah. same white outfit <laughs> when they're uh, rushing the house and getting shot. Uh, you know, it's choreographed in such a way that it is part of the aesthetic of the film. So you're not supposed to be dwelling on, oh my God, so many people are dying right now. You're supposed to be like, this is so gorgeous looking and this is so mind-blowingly well put together, you know, and these shots are connecting so gorgeously. Well, you watch um, Hard Boiled and your reaction is, and I didn't know if it was going to hold up or not, but you watch it and you're like, this is fucking awesome. That is right. just the only reaction to have the hard boiled is like, this is fucking awesome. You know? Yeah, absolutely. And I think when it comes to violence, I think obviously, you know, the idea of heroic bloodshed is just to get the melodrama up to such a high level that the violence, I think the way Jung Woo looks at it is like a disease, like a plague upon Hong Kong, you know, that these just hordes and hordes of like evil people exist and are going to be flooding into your life and all you can do even though you abhor violence personally you would prefer to walk away from this life all you can do is is, is shoot them and it's never you know drug trafficking it's never human trafficking it's always gun smuggling right that's always yeah. what like the bad guys are up to in these movies they've got this you know giant storage of guns under this hospital uh, or what have you so the idea is like there's so much violence like these bad people are bringing so many weapons of destruction into the world that it just exists it's just something you've got to deal with you got to pick up a gun and be better than they are at destruction you know i also i also think that the melodrama is so earnest and over the top and shameless that it that it really you know douglas sirk would watch these movies and be like tone it down fellas <laughs> Let's take sure. this a step down that I think the violence has to match it. I think that the violence has to be as operatic and huge to match the emotions of it that I think that I think that really with John Woo, not necessarily with other directors, but but the violence is serving the melodrama that he wants the melodrama to feel so like cosmically big that the violence has to get cosmically big, that it does have to be waves and hordes of people. Uh, who are coordinated. And again, that ties into the, to musicals. You know, it's real yeah. easy to watch something like, uh, you know, uh, the bandwagon and connect it to a movie like this, that just sort of larger than life stuff, the larger than life emotions, you know, it's yeah, a funny thing to it, say, this yeah. reminds me of my sister Eileen and kiss me Kate, but it does, you know? <laughs> yeah. Wearing it on their, wearing the emotions on their sleeves. And then the violence is there too. Like the scarf that he ties around Jenny's eyes and the killer, you know, that has the blood stains on it. Yeah. Um, what I like to think of it as, you know, John Woo has a movie called Heroes Shed No Tears, yeah. which uh, is one step away from the title Boys Don't Cry, right? <laughs> the the heroic bloodshed movies are like the cure of action movies in a way, <laughs> in that there's emotion and a certain kind of high school kid who is maybe not inclined to, you know, put on goth makeup and hang out smoking in a corner, might put on like a trench coat and sunglasses and be the heroic bloodshed guy of their class. Yes, I think that's definitely what it is. If you're somebody like me, who my favorite movie in high school is Singing in the Rain, you know, yeah. uh, or one of them, that you're going to be drawn to this kind of uh, melodrama. 
as well. And we should talk just to contextualize John Wu's career a little bit. He started out directing fairly generic, like Kung Fu, Wuxia Pian type movies. I don't know if he makes actual swordsman movies, but he definitely does that, that kind of Kung Fu type of film. And they're, they're pretty generic uh, up until he does Better Tomorrow, which is the first John Wu movie, I would say, wouldn't you? Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's the first one when we think of John Wu and it's a big hit and he does that basically that John Wu thing, you know, which is defined by a better tomorrow through to hard boiled. And then he leaves for uh, Hollywood and Hollywood, like all of these Hong Kong guys come there and Hollywood doesn't really know what to do with them with the exception of Yin Wuping. Uh, They sort of come over and aren't really able to be themselves completely and are sort of mashed into ill-fitting ill-fitting projects a lot of the time no one more than chow yun fat who is who is Mm -hmm. the most ultra charismatic fun funny i was watching uh these movies again and thinking like who who can you compare him to movie stars in american cinema and you go oh well he's a movie star and like all movie stars they're singular that's why they stand out is they completely find their own niche and do their own thing and i'd say he has sort of the humor that can be found in Mel Gibson or Bruce Willis, you know, at, at times. Um, but he also but he, has a coolness they don't yeah. have. You know, he's cooler than fucking anybody who's ever been an American big time star, you know? Absolutely. I wanted to ask you, do you think Chalian Fat is the last truly iconic movie star? I mean, who else can you name since then who's had that kind of just persona, the way he carries himself, that kind of visage. I mean, who has the ability to like walk on screen and you instantly know who this kind of person is? I mean, there have been obviously movie stars since then, but in terms of when you think back to like Humphrey Bogart or Alan Delon or uh, John Moreau or anybody, like someone who just has that quality that just like, boom, you instantly know that they belong on like a you know, Mount Everest of, of the great movie stars. Has there been anyone of that magnitude since Chow Yun-Fat in the early 90s? You know, that's that's an interesting question. I think it's a tough question because I think you're right that the modern blockbuster doesn't need stars in the same way. And you definitely yeah. see that with the, with the uh, Marvel universe, which makes stars out of people, you know, who then go on to not be stars out of the Marvel movies. But that machine... Uh, modern Hollywood as we know it uh, gets set in motion by the Matrix in 1997. And so it's it's a funny way to trace it back to he's the last movie star and they sort of figure out we can make these bigger, uh, just giant entertainment machines that are bigger than the stars themselves in some way. Yeah, and you just yeah. get the right actor for the right role and that's all you need to do rather than this movie star will bring a movie along with them, which is what Chow Yun-Fat does. I agree with William Goldman a long time ago, wrote an article that was like Adam Sandler is the last movie star that, and probably the last mm. movie star that will ever be, that he can open movies on his own and you say Adam Sandler's in it and everybody goes and watches it. There's nobody everybody left. Everybody gets it. Yeah. yeah, there's nobody left like that. But is Adam Sandler iconic in the way that Chow Yun-Fat and Humphrey Bogart and even, uh, you know, Schwarzenegger is, you know? Mm -hmm. No, I I don't think he is in that way because the comedy icons are different than than the, uh, you know, the uh, more purely Hollywood entertainment icons. Yeah, I agree with that. I think Chow Yun-Fat walks onto onto the scene and you're like, wow, something just changed. You know, something like everything is centered around this guy. There's the movie. 
yeah. walks in and you're like, there's the movie. <laughs> there it is. And they even, I, this is surprising because I always think of the killer as being his big star making, obviously his international star making turn, but they couldn't even get that movie made without him signing on. Like John oh, really? Woo did not have financing. Sui Hart could not get financing for the movie without Chai and Fat signing on and having his production company provide you know extra finance for that film. So even then, you know, in 1989, he was already gigantic in his own country. Yeah. Yes. And that's that's interesting to think about too. Where, you know, why why do they leave? I get why they all leave Hong Kong, but he was just done so dirty by the U.S. That where just shame. sexless, charmless, uh, you know, boring, bland, so many like wise Easterner roles too that are like the opposite of his like slippery, sly, charming, morally gray. He does, he is like Humphrey Bogart. He's the anti-hero who is always the hero. You know mm-hmm. what I mean? Like he yeah. never quite slips into anti-heroism, but he's, but he's got that feeling. You know? Yeah, and his like, rascally baby face that, you know, makes him enduring even while he's, you know, blowing 40 guys away. You yeah. know, he still looks like an innocent guy. He is an innocent person. But has a natural toughness to it. It's fun yeah. watching Hard Boiled again, how uh, how Tony Leung, uh, Leung is, uh, uh, is baby faced for it. And I sort of, I sort of don't believe him and all the action stuff, although... <laughs> I do. I do ultimately, but, but when, certainly when he's first on screen, you're like, "Mm, not as convincing. They just put a movie star in this role, you know? (laughs) Yeah. Putting Leong in there might veer too far into Wong Kar Wai-ness. You know, I always like, like to compare John Woo and Wong, you know, because Wong did do a heroic bloodshed film as tears goes, go by. Yeah. Uh, But there are parallels even between like something like days of being wild and uh, John Woo's movie bullet in the head, you know, where they, they have an interest in, you know, these characters and their psychological, you know, hangups and what's going on. Maybe not so much in their romantic lives, but uh, there's definitely like a, something of a Wong Kar Wai to some of John Woo's films for sure. Yeah. And and bringing Leong in there is like, Oh, now I'm thinking about Wong Kar Wai (laughs) every time he's on screen. Yeah, I always wonder, because Wong Kar Wai started out doing genre films uh, with Ashes of Time and As Tears Go By, and even Fallen Angels is like a hitman movie, you know? Mm, sure. Um, mm. It's It does make me go, did John Woo ever want to be Wong Kar Wai? You know, because Wong Kar Wai goes back and he's doing like the Grandmaster and things that are not very Wong Kar Wai-ish, what we think of being Wong Kar Wai-ish. And I always wonder, you know, because especially his career when he goes back to Hong Kong after paycheck sort of and wind talkers end everything for him in Hollywood and he returns, he does make more, this is John Woo operatic type um, costume period drama. It's, it's sort of, if you look at just the last decade and a half of their careers, Wong Kar Wai and John Woo look pretty indistinguishable from each other That's in a, a funny point. way sure. they look incredibly like similar which one directed the grandmaster i can't remember <laughs> exactly which one directed red cliff like right. who the hell knows um although i haven't seen uh the most recent one i haven't seen manhunt have you the most recent john Wu? i haven't actually crazily i have not i know it's right there on netflix and i just gotta turn it on at some point uh, yeah. i will now now revisiting these movies i want to see go back and watch red cliff again and, and watch his new one yeah i watched i watched red cliff i watched red cliff uh fairly recently and it's it's just not great he just like a lot of people he goes to hollywood and seems to get everything interesting 
kicked out of him. He just gets mm-hmm. the shit kicked out of him. As much as I enjoy Hard Target and Face Off, and even there are things to recommend Broken Arrow and Mission Impossible too. And, you know, of course, Broken Arrow, your favorite film criticism website gets its name from Broken Arrow, <laughs> which yeah. I know you always have a soft spot in your heart <laughs> for that phenomenal movie that they broke all of the stories on. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Marrying John Woo with John Travolta was never a great idea. But, yeah, <laughs> none, none of that. None of that. It, it's it's everything that should. I mean, when you look at the villains in, in Wu's films, they are so they're such black hats. I mean, they are just completely unredeeming in any way. I mean, in Hard Boy, he literally says the innocents must die. You know, like, yeah. must, like mow down as many hospital patients as possible. They are 100 percent evil. And I think that's what John Woo wants you to understand is this is just awfulness. Like this person does deserve to die. Yeah. You have someone like Travolta who is going to, you know, try to do the whole, you know, I'm a goofy villain, you know, I'm, you know, ain't it cool. Ain't it cool. You know, it's, it's just like, Oh, this is just such a bad action movie cliche that John, we should have nothing to do with bad guy should be like Lance Henriksen in hard target. Yes. Irredeemably awful and not and humorless, you know? Yeah. Until the very end with the grenade where he has that great moment. <laughs> Oh. But um, that, that, so yeah, I agree. American, America just did not know how to transpose Wu's personality over here. But, but going back to the killer and how in high school I always considered that his prestige movie, that and the Better Tomorrow films, you know, were sort of like his more, uh, his better, his masterpieces, right? Compared to something like Hard Boiled or Once a Thief. It's funny to look at them now in that, in that contextualization of, these are the melodramas and these are the ones that have like the shot of Chow Yun Fat where that Jenny sees in her head where he shoots the gun and then the blood blows up behind him. You know, these really kind of arty shots and this very kind of sullen sort of uh, dread drenched tone to them. And the Canto Pop, which is so good. And it's interesting because Wu did not want any of those songs in the movie. He wanted uh, John, the, the killer, to be a saxophone player in a jazz band yeah. and he wanted it to be all jazz and the producers told him no way like Hong Kong audiences hate jazz so it's got to be like popular songs pop songs I love the way that they play in that movie but it's funny to look at Hard Boiled where his hero is in a jazz band yeah and has that a Woody sort of, Allen uh, style clarinetist clarinet uh, and it's like, wow, John Woo really could do anything he wanted at this point. You know, <laughs> he can make he can jazz in it as he wants. He himself can show up as, you know, the, the mentor at this jazz club. Well, you know why that scene uh, is anyway. There, so right? the killer with him as with John Woo as the mentor at the jazz club, why those scenes are there is uh, uh, Chow Yun Fat thought there wasn't enough characterization to his character. So they just wanted to give him some more scenes to get fleshed out. And he said, John Woo, you should play the jazz club owner and Chow Yun Fat's thinking was that if he plays the owner, he won't cut these scenes. <laughs> that's, that's why he's an iconic movie star right there. <laughs> Decisions like that. But anyway, going back to hard boiled and still thinking back 20 years since I've seen these movies. Yeah. This one is the popcorny one. This is the one that you kind of like, ah, you know, it's fun, but it's not the killer. You know, it doesn't have yeah. that level of artistry. Wow. Was I wrong? Hard boiled yeah. just, is everything hard-boiled is everything yeah and you appreciate more watching it now that like the killer is great is still a lot of fun and still a very great movie but hard-boiled takes it to the next level and just the the 
the way that he made that film is I can't even contemplate how much energy sweat went into that movie. It makes the killer look like a toy in comparison. Yeah. It's interesting because I love the killer too. And you and I were, were actually talking about this when we were getting the episode together. When we were younger, it was like the killer is great and then see a better tomorrow and hard boiled if you can, right? Was sort of yeah. like the consensus. Now it's shifted to bullet in the head is the masterpiece and then see the killer and hard boiled if you can. And sort of like a better tomorrow is like fallen off the map, even though I think, I think bullet in the head killer and better tomorrow are all equally great you know, but I agree with you that hard boiled is the, is the step beyond. And as far as it can go, it's just like a pressed against the ceiling of what yeah. can be done in this and sort of pushing its way through in some way. Um, and it is less slick, I think is part of the reason for that. You know, John Woo wanted it to be a more gritty film. You know, he intentionally wanted it to be less stylized than his other movies. And that's, definitely intentional and so i think that the surface uh the surfaces of the killer style are really apparent so it was an easy pick to be like that one is so super stylish that's the great one and then bullet in the head being more realistic and less melodramatic and sort of more unpleasantly violent mm -hmm. i think now that's the the realism of it quote unquote realism of that movie the brutality is what people like but the like awesomeness of hard-boiled exceeds those movies. It just yeah. does. That's the and thing. They're, is and they're all great. They're all wonderful, and I love them all. They're all the great, way. but to say, but to, yeah. to diminish the pure awesomeness of hard-boiled because maybe it's not as, I don't know, introspective or character-oriented as The Killer or The Better Tomorrow films is a disservice to the movie. Yeah. You know, it's it's funny that, that Chow thought he needed, you know, to have these extra scenes for Tequila's background and, you know, have him be a jazz player and things like that are obviously interesting things to add to the movie, but really you don't need them. Like you really don't yeah. need them. Like I, I went this movie thinking as a joke, uh, the climax of this film is the second half of the movie, like takes up the entire yeah. second half of the movie. I thought that jokingly. And then I realized they get to the hospital at the one hour mark. Yes. And they're there for the rest of the film. It's a two hour movie. So literally the whole second half of the film is this raging inferno of a climax. It's an entire sequence. It's one sequence. The sequence is defined as a place that stays in one location in the same time frame. It's the it's it's incredible. It's yeah. incredible. And I had the same thought too, where it's like that hospital shootout is really long, isn't it? I bet it's like 45 minutes. <laughs> and then you watch it and you're like, it's when they get to the hospital, it's like, holy shit, they're at the hospital already. This is awesome. And there's so many different pieces to it and so many different parts to it. There's nothing you can compare it to in all of action cinema. I was trying to think of other great extended action sequences. And you obviously have like the bank heist and heat, like the downtown LA shootout. And it's like, how long is that? 20 minutes, you know, 25 <laughs> minutes. Like it's just dwarfed by the yeah, The only comparison would be the Nakatomi Plaza, which obviously takes up all of Die Hard, you know, where John yeah. McClane's running around shooting people. And maybe uh, the building that they go to the Terminator to, you know, that, that kind of drawn out scene with the SWAT team and everything. But I think Hard Boyle puts them to shame just yeah. in terms of full onslaught of crazy choreographed action and, and just what the greatest set piece of its kind. Well, it's also funny because everybody talks about the tea house shootout and then the big end of this movie. And I always go, but the warehouse shootout is in the middle there. And it's, and it's 
as good as either of them. That might be the best action scene in the movie. This movie is pure action mm-hmm. uh, in, a, in a way that, that again, was just not comprehensible in 1992. Even now, I, I don't think this amount of action is comprehensible in a movie. I think, again, like maybe something like The Raid and The Raid 2 that try and be nonstop action. But I think they're trying to get to the level hard-boiled is at. I think that's probably their goal. They probably say, we need to do something that matches the hospital scene. They should be. That should be the high watermark for any action film is let's get as close as we can to what John Woo did with the second half hard-boiled. And as you said, there are already three outstanding action sequences in the first half. And so we, they may very well be exhausted by the time we get to the, <laughs> the hospital for when the fireworks really start. I mean, you want to talk about getting to the fireworks factory. John Wu takes you to the fireworks factory and leaves you there for an hour. Yeah, you know? exactly. Exactly. And I have been, I've been watching a bunch of Jackie Chan movies with my son. And it's interesting to go through them and be like, there's not a huge amount of action in most of them. They're, mm-hmm. they're, most of them is like four or five scenes that are all, you know, three to seven minutes long. And that's good. They're great. It's not to diminish them, but you put on something like this that really is nonstop kinetic energy and motion. And I kind of watch some of those Jackie Chan movies and go, I wish a better director had directed some of these. Mm -hmm. I think that he's too in charge of them sometimes uh, that, that if a director had really tried to push what he does, I would have been interesting to see what it looks like. And geography too. I mean, that hospital, every new kind of revelation of a, you know, the, the basement or, you know, different hallway the morgue. or different room. Yeah. The morgue yeah. with all the things sliding out. Yeah. It's, it's fun. It's fun to explore this space. And when they start, you know, rappelling down out of the windows to save the babies and things like that. I mean, there's just always a new super innovative way to use the geography of this location. Yes. Completely explored, completely coherent. You're never confused about what's happening, who's shooting at who, except when it's intentional. There's a lot of great intentional confusion of, is this a police officer or not? Is this, you know, and, uh, you know, it's funny you mentioned that the villains are pure evil. You know, one of John Woo's recurring themes, obviously, is cop and criminals, two sides of the same coin, you know, indistinguishable between cop and criminal. The plot of Hard Boiled is very simple, is there's uh, Chow Yun-Fat's partner is killed in a shootout. He wants revenge on the gang that did it. There's an undercover cop in the gang who uh, he teams up with to bring down the weapons cache. That's it. That's the entire plot. Is there any other piece of this plot I've, that I've left out? <laughs> no, there isn't. Uh, and, that's, uh, that's, that's pretty much it. so you have these characters that are the cop who sort of doesn't play by the rules and the undercover uh, uh, officer who's forced to do things that call his morality into question and sense of moral self and and then you have all of these undercover police officers dressed as patients and doctors during the shootout and the bad guys have dressed themselves up as cops so it's a very chaotic to distinguish between these people. But at the same time, I think you're right that he has a lot to say about the resemblance between cop and crook, but he also wants to say, but don't forget on top of it, there's actual bad guys too. Yeah, yeah, no, the, the actual villain of these movies is always pure evil. But I uh, secretly, the best non-Chow character in these films is always the hit, the, the, the henchman, you know, the guy who's the yeah. number two, who's doing all the, who's doing all the legwork for the, you know, this, yeah 
this cowardly craven piece of shit bad guy uh i love one of my very favorite moments in the john woo movies from better tomorrow too where in the final shootout the uh hench the silent henchman the guy who's killed leslie chung and has been like a thorn in their side the whole time the 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 craven bad guys are running off with all the money and they're like here's here's a big pile of money for you and they run out and the guy just looks at the money for a second and then just walks out and goes to to die in the shootout know that he knows that he's going to be sac you know going to be dying in yeah. his final bloodbath but has no interest in taking this money the killer also has the character who the first one to draw blood from the killer to shoot him in the climax yeah uh, gets done dirty by the by the, the the ultimate bad guy the actual villain which is the same thing that happens here with the great character of the henchman who best character in the movie mad Dog. so great great character who just wants to take out this cop tequila this guy who's been a thorn in their side not even because he cares about the criminal endeavor so much but like he just this is this is the dynamic this is my this is my my nemesis this is the guy i've got to take out and he ultimately gets done dirty by the villain too because he doesn't want innocent people to get killed for no reason he understands the code in these films a guy with a gun is the guy who you shoot you don't shoot people just hanging around because you're a bastard and i you know that's the john woo formula there is that that henchman is always going to have a code of honor of his own yeah and i love that he shoots the head bad guy in the gut too you know, mm-hmm. I, I love that he that he does that. He shoots Johnny. He gets a shot off. A lot of times in action movies, the henchman turns and is like, I can't sign on to this and then is immediately dispatched. I love that he gets his shot off, you know, mm-hmm. that he actually is like, huh, well, fuck you. You know, it's, it's <laughs> yeah, great. Yeah, and that they hang too, you know, with this action that while these numerous minions are just getting plowed down left and right, there will be a five to 10 minute sequence of him and the main hero, Chow Yun-Fat, shooting at each other, you know, and trying to kill each other or Danny Leong, whoever it might be. But he just, you know, he just, he's always there and he's not going to get taken down until, you know, he develops a conscience. Yeah. It's funny too. I I will say watching it this time, I did, um, you can connect this movie to, 80s action cinema, American 80s action cinema in a way that I didn't when I watched it when I was younger, that it does feel like it's still a part of its time. It's still the saxophone riffs like Lethal Weapon on the sidewalk on the on the soundtrack and, uh, you know, same sort of the loose cannon cop who's got the hard ass chief that he doesn't get along with, you know, Mm -hmm. and and these sort of cliches are all throughout it. Uh, in a way that um, I didn't read them as cliches at the time. I read them as this is the way action movies are made. They were invisible. Yeah, the undercover cop living on a, a boat. Yeah, <laughs> you know? yeah. Who, who's being pushed, you know, to the brink of of all of that. But it's fascinating mm. because Chow Yun Fat is really funny and fun and charming in this movie. And if you compare it to the same time period, American action cinema was flopping trying to make their action stars legitimately cool the way Chow Yun-Fat is that you have when they try and make them funny or a little winking you end up with actors like the Boz or Ford Fairlane or Hudson Hawk that as everything was changing they they sort of flopped in some way you know, that that I think there was a sense in the film industry of we have to acknowledge, even Last Action Hero, that we can't go on making these movies anymore. These are all too much cliches now at this point. These things have been being done since the early 70s, basically yeah. since Dirty Harry invents yeah. this, 
we've all been doing Dirty Harry movies. In fact, John Woo said he wanted Hard Boiled to be his Dirty Harry movie. And so it's fascinating to see Chow Yun-Fat actually pull it off and not be as much as I love Stone Cold as anyone in the world, as anyone who ever lived, the Boz is ridiculous in Stone Cold, you know? (laughs) How dare you? That's That's Joe Huff. I am, I am, I am, I am on fourth size side <laughs> until the end. He was right all along. He was right all along. Uh, um, another interesting thing is that uh, this is the first time Chow Yun-Fat in a John Woo movie is playing a, a morally righteous character in that he's a cop, right? He's not an anti-hero yeah. in any way. He's not a hitman or a gangster or a thief. So it's, there's almost something more. Or upsetting. a thief's twins brother, legend of Curly's <laughs> gold style. That's right. Or beer fest style. The, um, there's something it's interesting where it makes the violence feel dirtier because you know he shouldn't be doing this. He shouldn't be mowing down bad guys. He should be arresting them, right? Like that should be what he's doing. Uh, so if he's not I careful, kind of, he's going to shoot a cop accidentally. Exactly, the cops will get killed. Yeah, I mean that happens twice in the movie. You know, uh, where a cop accidentally gets shot by another cop. So I love that. You know, that has a sort of thing that's sort of laying on t- just under the surface is that. Oh, he's like an executioner, but he should not be doing this. You know, <laughs> like you, you see Tony Leung as an undercover cop doing these things, these dirty deeds. You know, uh, and it's another great sort of bit of the subplot that he clearly has developed like a relationship with this head of the gang that he, you know, has infiltrated. That he sees him as almost sort of like a father figure type. Yeah. So he's really, it's tough for him to kill him when he has to. You know, and that's something that is not overstated at all it's just something that happens in that warehouse scene that you really appreciate that you know it takes the fact that it takes all of his everything he can muster to kill this man who he has you know developed a relationship with and in this one scene and then it's followed right away by tequila swinging in from you know the rafters (laughs) and mowing everybody down mercilessly yeah you know just the two sort of you know dynamics of violence of either it's this thing that is just going to tear your soul out of your chest or it's just something that you do, you know, it's just something <laughs> that you just swing in like fucking Batman and just start shooting everybody. I, I love that there's room for both of these ideas in the same movie in the same scene, even. Yeah, absolutely. I, I agree with that 100%. But yeah, and tequila it... is so cool. I mean, the poster, I had it uh, up over my bed in high school for years and years is uh, tequila holding a baby. You know, yeah. with a shotgun. And it was the coolest poster ever made. I love in the movie, he makes the baby genuinely smile. Chow even charms a baby in the fucking of course, movie. Of course. Who can it's, doubt it? It's funny because I had in my high school bedroom the hard target poster up mm-hmm. forever. What were your what were your high school high school bedroom posters? Because mine were super lame. I had hard target. I had a <laughs> I had a Jesse the Hammer Tuggle poster uh from the the great Atlanta Falcons linebacker. You and had bushwhacked. I had bushwhacked. I had a bushwhack poster and then I had a Shel Silverstein poster I had made myself where I had drawn one of his and written one of his poems. And I think oh, that, that oh, and the, cool. and the periodic table of elements. Those were the posters <laughs> I had. Oh, I could beat you in terms of lameness. I mean, I had all the staples. I had clerks, I had raging bull. Um, I had trains, a huge train spotting poster yeah. because one thing, even though I like train spotting just fine, but the main thing I found out about train spotting is that girls in my high school who liked movies and were cool like train spotting yeah so that was an in you know oh you like train spotting yes i do you know what they liked they liked ewan uh, mcgregor ewan mcgregor's dick 
is what they liked. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. Of course they liked Ewan McGregor. I like Ewan McGregor and Ewan McGregor's no, they dick. Liked, they liked heroin chic, right? No, what are yes. you going to say? No, that's what I was going to say is they like Ewan McGregor's <laughs> dick. That's what they were into. They liked the hog. That because I like the- Chalian Fett's baby, personally. <laughs> <laughs> it's funny, the, the baby thing, it's funny that you mentioned that. Uh, I, I had an experience with this in high school. I was at, at the Christiana Mall in Delaware with Evan Draper. And we were in the like Suncoast video there looking for stuff. And we overheard a clerk there who was like uh, a more regular nerd. He was like a video store nerd in a mall, not like the cool video store guy. And he was trying to convince, uh, uh, it was like a young couple with a baby. They were like in their twenties to watch hard boiled and extolling its virtues. And he talked about the moment where the baby pees on Chow Yun fat. Right. And mm-hmm. he talked about like how you'd never see that in Hollywood. And to me, it was like, that's the one Hollywood thing in this. That's the like one goofy, <laughs> there's that kind of shit in the last fast and furious movie. You know, that's the one moment where it gets too cutesy for me. And I feel like that's the kind of thing you would actually see in Hollywood movies that it avoids doing pretty well. And I thought, why would this clerk is given the worst possible pitch for this movie? Allow me to interject myself, young couple, who clearly just wants to rent like Beverly Hills Ninja or something. Like, you know. I I could tell these people love baby urine, so <laughs> capitalize <laughs> you, on that. You know what uh, got me this time watching it? The other thing that I was like, oh shit, is uh, it's John uh, Kunimura in the opening scene. From Ooh, Audition and, and Ishii the Killer. Oh, I even wow. see, you know, it's the head mob boss from Ishii the Killer who keeps showing up to the scenes where Ishii is like slaughtered everyone. And he's like, I'm, this is making me ill. While Kakihara's like, this is awesome. He's like, what are we doing? I don't want to be a mob boss anymore. It's him. <laughs> and he's in the, he's the uh, guy who shoots uh, uh, Tequila's partner in the opening scene, which oh, wow. I, I didn't, I don't think I even knew. Well, those movies, Audition and Ishii the Killer, I certainly hadn't seen by the last time I had seen this movie. Those movies didn't mm. even exist probably by the last time I saw this film. So yeah. there was no reason to be like, oh, it's him. That's neat. That's neat. If I'm going to like criticize the plot at all, which I think is completely counterproductive, honestly, yeah. uh, because it's not the point at all, but I just love that this is the worst police force in the history of cinema. <laughs> like, <laughs> really? You're going to send in an undercover cop not tell anybody who it is, even the cop who is investigating this gang. What's the, what's the advantage here? <laughs> yeah. Know? What are you even thinking? Um, and, and too often, too often they put just uh, the collateral damage and the the uh, innocent casualties in general. Like this guy would have been fired long ago. But going back to music, um, yes, I really love the use of music in this movie. Not only you know, uh, you know the score and things like that, but just how the way that Tony Leong, you know sends a code is a song he sends a song yeah. to the department it's things like that that you're like okay i guess i can, can you know forgive this incompetent police department because they have these really cool you know series of codes that they have to like unscramble every time they come in and they have nice little <laughs> that's fun that's a way to keep your job fun right yes get these get these bouquets of flowers and then figure out what song tony leong is referring to and what it means and it's great too, because it, you do piece it together where it sets it up very well. It's a good script. That's the mm-hmm. thing is it's all action, but the script is actually good where you're piecing together. Tony Leung is undercover. This is why he's doing certain behaviors. Uh, also, you know, with the, the flowers are getting sent. Oh, it's some other man that she's seeing. Chow Yun-Fat's girlfriend, who's also in the police force, is receiving these flowers. Should he be jealous? They're on the outs. 
oh, they sing this song. You realize it's a code going through. You just put it all together very gradually in a way that's very satisfying mm-hmm. and, and uh, uh, simple and fun and interesting. And that's the thing is that the non-action scenes aren't a slog as they tend to be in Jackie Chan movies. It's, you know, where it's, you do have moments of like, get to the action, enough of this. You know, that these movies that hardboiled in particular, it just gets through them so quick, but they're also interesting. Even yeah, when they're, they're moving, they're moving at the same, you know, speed. I think yeah. it's the action movies. Like there's a tone that Wu really understands where, you know, the action scenes are obviously going to be big, but the moments in between are going to move at the same pace. You know, they're going to yeah. like, it's going to be a flow that you appreciate, which I, I, I agree. Some of the Jackie Chan films and even the Jet Li films maybe don't appreciate, you know, t- given the same sort of, you know, balance to the, the non-action scenes. Yeah. And I also, I agree with you about the music this time, watching the music, uh, watching the movie, I was really struck by the music doesn't do any heavy lifting that in the warehouse scene, the music is very sanguine and, and moderate to slow tempo. And you compare it to something like the matrix where that like fast tempo breakbeat stuff, you could play that over a guy eating coffee and you're like, wow, this is fucking exciting. Like the yeah, music or Terminator does, too. Totally. Yeah. Where the music does so much of the heavy lifting and the music is actually completely contrapuntal in this film. The music is slow and jazzy and moody throughout it. Uh, it gets a little more intense during the uh, hospital sequence but I was really impressed this time by he's working against the music intentionally. That is so hard to do as an action director, just like mm. the, de- the degree of difficulty on that jump, you know, like you're doing, you're doing a measuring a gymnast as a judge. You see that degree of difficulty that he is creating things that are fast paced and exciting in opposition to moody, slow music, just such a huge degree of difficulty. That's how he, hurdles a lot of the potential cliches in his career. I was just thinking of the use of somewhere of the rainbow and face off, you know, during the, yeah. uh, the, the action scene where, Oh, you know, a completely benign soundtrack, you know, in contrast to the extreme yeah. violence that's happening is such a goddamn cliche, but you realize like, no, that's, that's who John Wu is, you know, like that's something that is ingrained inside of him. And that's why, he can do a sequence like that that works and doesn't feel like, oh, this thing again, you know, this old fucking hat trick. These are not tricks. These are, jo- these are John, you're looking at John Woo. Like this is his artistry. Yeah. And it, and it, again, it plays into and works in conjunction with the tone of the, the heroic bloodshed, which you're right to point out are melodramas at their core, you know, that, that you can, be hard on your sleeve, as you say, with the music selections, because these are movies that are full of people crying and embracing and screaming at each other and falling in and out of love and, you know, going to their death. Friendships. Friendships broken and remended. Yeah. Bound by duty and honor to self-annihilation and religious imagery like this, these movies, uh, you know, there's the little stuff with the shrines in this film, you know, that that these movies, you know, the killer obviously leans into it with the church and the candles and everything. But just giving it such over the top imagery and metaphorical, the doves, you know, just just mm-hmm. taking it that far that I think that the music has to go that far, too. I think that that's another way in that I realize now hard boiled is such a huge achievement and when you compare it to the killer the killer is a film that 
isn't afraid to lean into cliches and into its themes and its visual cues. Hard Boiled is like, I can do this kind of thing flawlessly, you know, when I'm not yeah. worried about those things, when I'm not worried about you getting it or like Melville connections or things like that, when I'm just making a straight up hard boiled action movie, <laughs> it's going to come off as 100% awesome. I kind of appreciate that he doesn't, you know, go out of his way or bend over too much to get the audience in on his ideas with hard boiled because the ideas are there. They're just there. They're in there. You know, they're in the cranes that t Tony Leung, you know, crafts every time he kills somebody again, an idea that's super cliche, but it feels natural to the film. You know, what's funny is watching it this time. I didn't realize my memory of it was that Tony Leung died and that end sequence mm -hmm. I had always thought is supposed to be some kind of a flashback. Watching it this time, he's alive and getting away, isn't he? Yeah. Okay. I, I never remember in any of John Woo's Hong Kong films who, who lives and who dies at the end. At the end of Better Tomorrow 2, they're all like mortally wounded, but they're sitting yeah. up and joking with each other. <laughs> That's such a great scene. I know. And then the flashbacks at the end of The Killer, you know, where, you know, he's clearly dead, but, you know, he's sort of alive in Danny Lee's mind or whatever. You, you know. know what? You know what funny killer thing I was thinking when I watched it this time is Killer does the pistachio disguise joke where they do a flashback to something that just happened, you know, where he goes <laughs> into the alley and he goes, let me think, you know, from Master of Disguise. That happens at the beginning of The Killer. We see her get blinded and then it flashes back to it like, a minute and a half later like you remember when that's... he sees her again yeah and you're yeah. like remember it's her and you're like yeah i know i know i know that was that was i nothing else has happened in this movie that's all we've done so far is see her get blinded yeah nothing killer else... loves its flashbacks that's for sure nothing else to remember about this film it's great though when i'm goofing on it i still love all that and i think that that's again like you can make fun of the stories and the performances and some of the ideas in an mgm musical you're completely missing the point it does nothing Absolutely. to reduce to reduce the enjoyment of those films to say that these emotions are over the top these jokes are over the top these dance sequences are over the top well of course that's the whole enjoyment of it you know that's the right. whole idea uh, is exactly. that this stuff should should be just ratcheted up basically as far as it'll go, you know? And it is funny. I was I was thinking uh, too about how much the action scenes in this movie resemble the the famous barn raising scene in Seven Brides for Seven Brothers, which is if you made me say what's the sustained action sequence that most resembles hard boiled, I'd go that sequence, you know, where they do the fight and do the dance off and all yeah. of that. It, and it goes on for however long it is for 20 minutes. It, that's the only thing I can think of that has the sort of sustained creativity done in the same way. That's a great comparison. Yeah, no, it's uh, it has that sustainability and that's, what's kind of amazing about it that you aren't constantly trying to figure out, you know, trying to remember who characters are and, and what motivations might be and, you know, where it's all headed. It's just, it's just such a natural flow because it has that same control as the ultra ultra choreographed action sequences because the whole thing is manufactured in a way to get you to the place it needs to be to get you to the hospital where before they you know kick things up and before everyone starts showing up with the guns they can still have you know the snitch who's going to get whacked by a mad dog you know and things like that that are happening on the in the subplots you know before it gets to that it has it it knows what it knows how to balance its time and it's 
yeah, it's unparalleled in that way. Yeah. And it is, it's, I think it's also, it's funny to talk about this movie uh, for an extended amount of time. I think it also shares with the MGM musicals, the thing where I love this movie. I get a lot out of this movie. I don't know how much I have to say about this movie. You know what I mean? Like Singing Rain's a movie I love. What, what do I have to say about it? Be sort of just marveling at how perfect it is, you know, at how delightful it is. You know, what do I have to say about Hard Boiled beyond just marveling? What's there to dissect? Sure. Yeah. yeah how, how perfectly it works, how it is exactly what it is supposed to be, not even what it wants to be, but what it's supposed to be and how, how just it's just, it's awesome. That's, that's, it's funny. It's a perfect movie for a teenage cinephile in that way too, because you can completely encapsulate the proper thought about this movie of just, it rules, you know, is actually the perfect totality thought. It doesn't require an academic dissection to pull layers out of it. You know, it doesn't require uh, necessarily deep thinking to get all that's excellent out of it. It's accessible in that way. And it's self-evident. It's self-evident the way a great musical is self-evident, you know? And Beautifully put. Absolutely agree. And you can't undermine its cultural impact. I mean, again, yeah. just the way action films changed in the 90s following these kind of films. I mean, you can never say that, you know, John Woo is not the most important filmmaker to come out of Hong Kong for that reason, you know? Yeah. And that the impact by him and, and, and Hark and Lam uh, and then maybe to, you know, lesser Les extent, Johnny Toe. Leslie and Nelson's like career was never the same again after Hong Kong came to Hollywood. <laughs> Sorry. That's right. Mr. McCoo became the most iconic film of its time. No, but that's a great example of Hollywood being like, what are you fucking doing with these guys? I know these guys make some cheeseball comedies in Hong Kong. Like you've got to see their careers and be like, we don't need, that's not what they should be doing. Anyway no but yeah no, you're right you're right hard-boiled is awesome i mean <laughs> we, we could have we could have ended this 60 seconds into the episode by just saying god damn what an awesome what an awesome movie what a flawlessly perfect action film this movie <laughs> yeah and i think that john woo was also instrumental um i think with the tarantino connection that that breaks a lot of this into America too. That that's certainly the yeah. first context I heard about this is there's this guy who's ripping off this stuff, right? And mm -hmm. I think that was a lot of a lot of the breakthrough for it. It also was interesting for me personally. This is this is uh, was instrumental in getting me into international cinema to going to the 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 cool video store and looking for stuff. Uh, but it also introduced me to Jean Pierre Melville because John Woo was such a big fan when there was the Le Samurai release just splattered all over the poster was Martin Scorsese presents John Woo's favorite movie is more or less what the poster said. And, uh, and so I was like, well, I got to see that. And that's a real turning point. Once you find Melville, you're sort of headed into the world of, of real cinema in some way of, of art cinema, I should say, not real cinema. Um, yeah. International yeah, it was cinema. It was it was a good confluent confluence of a lot of things happening at the same time period. I mean, these movies kind of being legitimized in a way by Tarantino, by Better Tomorrow Two showing up on TV and True Romance and things like that. I mean, he became at that point, you know, the guy to go to to say what was what you should be watching, what films are important, 
and uh, and him and, pushing and, Miramax to and release Wong Kar Wai. Yeah, yeah, mm-hmm. oh, yeah awesome. of course. So all these things, you know, kind of came at the same time. And and you know, as I said at the beginning, and you're saying now, you know, they just it just became a window to to everything else. You know, you can say, well, I followed Evil Dead to John Woo. And I followed John Woo to Jean-Pierre Melville and followed Melville to this. And, and, you know, it just keeps going like that. And there hasn't been a time more significant in my life uh, to, to, to expanding my horizons in that way. Yeah. That in heroic bloodshed really was the thing that, that started that. Well, that's, what's funny is you go on social media and you see some like younger people's like letterboxed accounts And you'll see, these are the movies I watched for the first time this month. And it's like hard-boiled and eight and a half and seventh seal. And, you know, uh, these movies that you're like, you are seeing seven samurai. You're seeing everything in that month. You know, you are seeing Mm -hmm. all of that. And you definitely have those few years in your early cinephilia where I look back. Like last summer with my son, there was a two-week stretch where we watched terminator die hard total recall and escape from new york and i was like what the fuck think about that just like think about seeing all those movies basically in a couple weeks you know and and you're never going to have at our age we're never going to have that again where if we sat down and knocked out 20 of the absolute classics we've never seen let alone Mm -hmm. do that a couple months in a row and it and it is this movie was definitely like you're saying part of one of those runs where I was seeing the movies that were not only the classics, but would be completely formative to my interests and yeah, point me down only, the path. We can only appreciate it through our kids, right? Like you say, you're showing Parker, uh, Jackie Chan movies now, and he's experienced you're kind of <laughs> vicariously, uh, experiencing those for the first time through his eyes. Yeah. And I'm doing the same thing with my kids. Um, uh, and Jackie Chan too, I should mention, I probably have already said this on, uh, this podcast before but uh find trying to find armor of god like going through a phone book to all the video stores in the area yeah to find armor of god was how i found video vault which was my uh paradiso you know my amazing video store that just had everything and had clerks who were knowledgeable and were playing you know sydney lumet and uh um uh, fellini movies and max ophel movies every time you'd come in on the tv you know i mean that was a whole new world yeah this place was was a a fraction of what video vault was this place was nice this place you could see seven samurai you could not see high and low and that's one of the things that i think people also don't necessarily contextualize is how difficult it was to see movies up until the internet you'll occasionally see people nostalgic for the video stores and physical media places and it's looney tunes ebay and and amazon (laughs) gave me an access. I've told this story many times. When I was in high school, I had a list of 20 movies from going in like video guides and interviews and reviews of 20 movies that I really wanted to see. That these were like, I want to see these movies. These sound like something I'd love. And by the time I was done with high school, I had crossed three of them off the list. And two of them were any Frederick Wiseman movie, because I saw Belfast, Maine. And any Fassbender movie. And I saw Maria Braun and those, and I had no access to the other movies on this list and they were not deep cuts. They were like diary of a country priest, you know, uh, you know, uh, better tomorrow was probably on that list or maybe better tomorrow too. One of those I, I hadn't been able to see. 
uh, of the John Woo's. I'd seen all of them and then there was like one John Woo, maybe it was Boat in the Head that I hadn't seen. And then I came to New York and you can get all of this stuff. And that was amazing in New York that you could see it. I saw a lot of these movies just going down to Chinatown. They had the, the VCD sellers. You could just go down and, and maybe there'd be something on the disc. Maybe there wouldn't, you know, you could just buy the little, the little jewel cases with uh, handwritten on it VCD saying all of these Hong Kong movies that you were interested in. You can find in. the Army of Darkness comics in New York. You can find anything in New York City. You couldn't find anything in New York, not before the internet. That's the other thing is you could find a lot, but I remember trying to find like Feng Sai Yuk and just, yeah. you well, couldn't get it. If you're you know? searching though, you'd, you'd find what you're looking for. I mean, that's just the great thing about it, but yeah. Um, it's maybe the way that like World War II veterans consider it the best years of their lives, you know, <laughs> that we look back on video stores and uh, say, even though it was, you know, a pain in the ass to find anything and, you know, <laughs> look in the phone book for the right video store and things like that. We think of it like, oh man, but what a time, you know, to, what, a, what an age of discovery it was for us. And that, that just became the second most unfortunate comparison I made in this episode <laughs> after painting the portrait of a uh, school shooter in the trench coat and glasses in high school. Um, but I know what you mean. You know, it's the video store experience is great to go to a place and look at things and browse and wander around and be in a space full of stuff you love and discover things you aren't looking for right? To find movies that you didn't know you were interested in. That's all great. And that's all really valuable, but it has extreme limits. It just does. Uh, and, and I think that a lot of people romanticize, uh, uh, they have a nostalgia for circumstances that never existed. They have a nostalgia for something that was actually very, very limiting. So you're right. I wouldn't trade, Hey, that video store is going out of business. I'm going to go spend literally seven hours going through every single box of tapes they have to see what I want to get and want to buy for a dollar. You know, I did that many times. I was as much of a crate digger as anybody. I as of big course. a VHS collection as anyone I ever, I ever met. Right. And, uh, and so I don't, I don't, you know, I'm obviously a part of that world and have had that experience and I don't want to diminish it too much, but I also don't want to go to the wrong side of, I wish it were that way now. I absolutely do not wish video stores were the primary <laughs> way to get films. I do not, I wouldn't wish that on my worst enemy. You know, if your place doesn't have it, if you live out in the countryside, you know, you've, you're going to see Seven Samurai and Hidden Fortress and then wonder what other Kurosawa movies are like for years. Yeah. Well, know? there's something too about being an archaeologist of video stores where you're the only person in your school to have a better tomorrow the killer and yeah. hard boiled on VHS on your shelf. So people walk into your house and look at it and go, Whoa, what the fuck are those? You know, because they yeah. don't know what the hell they are because you yeah. went out and you actually, you know, you hit the pavement, you found those movies and you know about those movies. It's just a sort of a bat, you know, badge of honor to like be included in that, you know, thing that was going on at the and, time. And you and I are unquestionably friends from, looking at our collections and being like, right. I should get along with this guy. This guy is interested in things I'm interested in. This guy, you know, has a good collection of stuff that that's unquestionably part of, of how we became friends too. And that sort of sharing of, of collections and passing rarities back and forth and then going to video stores and conventions and that sort of stuff together. Yeah. We're a real tequila and Tony Leon duo. I was mad dog and you were Johnny. <laughs> now, you just went too far with it, John. You've gone too far. <laughs> what's about the? What's this about out of line? You said that to me at one point. I was like, John, you're out of line. I said, what's this about out of line? It was, and your name is John. You are Johnny. Holy shit. <laughs> 
I just put two and two together. This very, uh, yeah, and it's, I guess this is, I guess this is in keeping with the graduate episode we did where this is sort of a nostalgia cast for me and maybe a little bit more of that than we normally do. But again, like, I, like I said, I just, I have this very difficult treatment while we were recording. I got a bad, not thrilling, not terrible, but not thrilling call from my doctor that I had to take a break uh, uh, from. And it's, it's, you know, I am retrospective. I am looking back a little bit at what I did and how I got here and what it all means. So it is, you know, it's nice when you first, you know, propose this idea and it was like, I, I guess so. I, you know, you think about those movies, you're like, I, I'm done with those movies. I don't need to revisit the, I get, I know what those films are. Yeah. And then when you actually sit down to watch them and it's not just nostalgia, it's like, I'm appreciating this in a different way at a different age. Yeah, you know, for the first time after twenty no, years. And no, no, I them appreciated it, it the exact same way I appreciated it at fifteen. I <laughs> I got no as I got it was like transportive the way people have in some ways to go back to art they liked when they were younger, you mm-hmm. know, and to see it. It was like this. This I remember seeing this and feeling this way when I watched it the first time. This is yeah. all coming flooding back to being in my basement, you know firing the VCR up and just watching this movie on that big, you know, TV, fat TV on the ground. Fair enough. Fair enough. There's something to be said for that, but I do appreciate that. I completely undervalued hard boiled as the other John Woo movie besides the killer and the better tomorrow films. You know, I have a whole new appreciation for it, having revisited it, which who knows what motivation I would have had to have done that otherwise. So, yeah. But I, but I also, I think about your idea a lot where, uh, that you had to throw out of, you weren't going to watch any Kurosawa films until you turned 50, that you were going to take a break and watch them all again. You've obviously thrown that out when you have kids, you just want to show them all the good stuff. So I understand, but I, I think about that a lot. And I actually held off. I was going to reread a book of laughter and forgetting. And I was like, no, I'm not going to read that book again until I'm 50. And I'm going to, I'm going to hold off on reading it. And I think there is something that it wasn't on purpose, but not having watched Hard Boil for 20 years, that it was a very different experience uh, than I have. Most of the movies I've loved, I keep in contact with. You know, I've watched the Jackie Chan movies I love continuously. I haven't gone more than six months without watching a Jackie Chan movie. And for a lot of the movies I've loved since high school, you know, do I go more than a year without watching Band of Outsiders? Maybe I have. You know, uh, but certainly the 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 movies that meant a lot to me when I was young, if anything, John Carpenter and Indiana Jones have come more into my life in the past 15 <laughs> years. You know, there was like a break around college where I was like, I'm done with those. But those sort of stay continuous with me in some way. And having this break from this, uh, it's one of the few movies that really meant a ton to me uh, when I was a kid to go back to that I haven't seen. It's like seeing a really, really old friend in some ways. Mm-hmm. You know, it, it really is that that feeling of just, I remember all this, more like seeing an old girlfriend than an old friend, you know? Cause if it's an old friend, there's something strange about seeing them. If you've fallen out, there's a reason for it. It's like seeing an old girlfriend and being like, oh, I remember everything I felt. I remember everything about this. I know exactly who you are. I know exactly what this is. I know exactly what these feelings are. This is crazy, you know? Except you're like, 
oh, now I can just hit some buttons and stream you and not heave a huge laser disc out of its sleeve <laughs> to queue you up. Those were those were the two first Criterion collection DVDs I got. The mm-hmm. first DVD I ever got was Mallrats. I bought it the same day I bought the DVD player, but Killer and Hardboiled, and they went out of print super quick, too. So those were those were difficult ones to get, also. And I always had this like, wow, I'm really glad I bought those right at the beginning. Yeah, yeah, those are the first ones I remember being super hard to get after they went out of print. Salo was the other one. Salo yeah. was impossible yeah. mm-hmm. to get for a really long time. And I had all three. I had my glorious. Oh, listeners, it might surprise you to hear that I was once a Criterion nerd, that I once (laughs) did things like, I'll buy in the ship sails on, it's in the Criterion collection, that I once belonged to your clan. Well, I didn't think The Rock was that good, but if Criterion is telling me it is, I guess I should get it. When I got to interview them, I got to interview Peter Becker and, oh, her name is escaping me, the woman who was the executive director of Criterion Collection at the time. I asked about the Michael Bay films, not antagonistically. I meant it like she's going to have a really good justification for this. And she was like, that was before I ran it. I don't, I don't have anything to do with those like defensively. And Mm. I was like, this feels like (laughs) talk about bad comparisons. This feels like when we had a Turkish ambassador and we interviewed them and somebody in the audience asked about Armenian genocide and they flipped out and had no, and were incredibly defensive. And I was like, how is this not, how are you not prepared for this question? <laughs> I was like, how do you not know you're going to get. For the genocide of taste. Exactly. <laughs> how do you not know? These are perfect comparisons we've made and we stand 1000% behind them. <laughs> Going to video stores was like being a soldier in World War II. Criterion putting out The Rock and Armageddon was like Armenian genocide in that it was denied by future generations of perpetrators <laughs> who saw no connection to the history of their culture to this uh, genocide. They're the ones who write the history books, the Criterion <laughs> people. No, but she was really like angry that I had brought it up and I thought she was going to have some justification. That's also easy to forget is there was a moment in like 2004 when that ultra edited Michael Bay style, people were like, no, this is real cinema. You know? Yeah. yeah. That there was like a moment when the academics was like, now's our time to shine and defend this pile of shit. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. That was an unfortunate time. (laughs) They'll get back to it. Oh, they're back to it now. They're back to it now. I'm not going to, I'm not going to name names, but there are some filmmakers that are now being called. Yeah. Great artists who are the exact opposite of what a, what a movie should be. That, that was always my joke about the Fast and the Furious franchise is, you know, taking the China to headline. Ugly buildings, horrors, and terrible movie franchises all become respectable with enough time. <laughs> it's true, though. It is absolutely true. It's absolutely true. It's just give it enough time and they'll, they'll be only the fans. I was talking about this with Marcus Penn yesterday. I was hanging out with Marcus from Penland Empire, and I was talking about how so much of film history is the only people who are watching the the movie in question are someone who's a fan of it inclined to like it so the history really is getting written by the fans the history is getting written by the winners where who the fuck knows who Mitchell Leeson is and knows that Mitchell Leeson is not a great director the only people talking about Mitchell Leeson are inclined to be interested in him and like him so the majority of conversation about Mitchell Leeson isn't wow that motherfucker really lucked out to get scripts from Billy Wilder and Preston Sturges he pretty much sucks 
that's not the conversation about him, which was the conversation at the time, which was like these great, great writers being wasted on this hack, you know, in most cases, the conversation is, hey, he's underrated because I watched one and now I'm aware of it. And so my opinion is going to be, I didn't waste my time watching this B minus movie, you know? And so much of the, the history <laughs> right. is determined not really, that re- Not realizing there's a reason that people aren't talking about him. <laughs> yeah, well, it's just like the person who's going to, who writes the history is the only person talking about it. The fan yeah. is going to write the history ultimately with yeah. the older things get. And that happens, it just happens with everything is that the Michael Bay fans, there will only need to be two of them and they'll be the only ones writing about how great Michael Bay is in 30, 2035, you know? And, you know, it's all, it's, it's, you just see it constantly where just the worst piles of shit from your childhood, there's a nostalgia that people have for it. You know, when you're like 20 and you're like Space Jam, man, fuck this movie, like fuck everything about this and what it does to the franchise. Fuck Lola Bunny, fuck all of this garbage. And now Space Jam, it's a classic, pop classic, you know, and it's just what happens. So that's why it's a relief to go back to hard boiled <laughs> and have hard boiled be actually awesome. <laughs> and as you said, you know, a few times, I mean, it has no equivalent. It's not something that, you know, you can package and, you know, uh, reboot, you know, and kind of bring back for a new commercial audience. It's really, it's, it's the great things about it. The highlights about this film are so unique yeah. and unpackageable, <laughs> you know? Yeah that it's something that is never going to be when we talk about nostalgia it's like yeah i'm I'm nostalgic for something that was actually amazing not i recognize a brand name and now you know i want that brought back you know yeah it's something remember that it, mad balls it's something that endures because it deserves to you know and yeah because it was just a, an example of excellence in its time and it's funny too when you said you're you're done with those movies I'm done for years and years, for 20 years, I've been done with the kind of nerd fandom culture that John Woo was a part of, you know, in in that era that just, you know, that kind of stuff I've just been done with for so long that to see it and see that it's separable from, you know, the convention autograph seeking black t-shirt printed graphic tee culture that's so far you know the physical media culture that's so far in the past for me right Mm -hmm. and it's separable from it it is its own thing that exceeds just you know like the the joke in in chasing amy that that i love chow yun fat but i just don't see him as who what character as the flash whatever character they're saying Mm -hmm. in it it's it's that culture it was unquestionably part of um the it's, failure to bring that over to translate Italian fat to American, I think <laughs> speaks to how unique it was, you know, yeah. a, a thing so hard to, you know, put into a box. Yeah. It's also very easy to underrate things that were such huge influences. I mean, for a long time, I was like, Oh, diehard, whatever, you know, yeah. instead of the attitude of uh, the greatest ever, you yeah. know, because it yeah. had so many clones and imitations that you just, don't think about it anymore you think like oh yeah i know it's, it had its cultural thing and it was a big impact whatever no 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 not whatever 
Yeah. Die Hard was the thing. It was the Nakatomi Plaza, the giant building that yeah. everybody wanted to get into. You know? Well, that's when you go through with your kids and watch stuff. And my son and I just watched Alien recently. And that's like, yeah, Alien. Alien's great. Alien's probably one of my favorite movies. And then you watch it again and you're like, no, Alien. For real. <laughs> yeah. Fucking Alien, man. Good example. And, and this too. This was very much the like, yeah, hard boiled. And it's like, no fucking hard boiled my man but again it's it's funny i feel like this is a kind of fanboyish conversation that we're having it's a different kind of conversation than we normally have on this podcast uh but i don't think that's bad with this movie i think this movie earned it and deserves it and i'm and i'm happy to meet it in whatever terms i can you know it's nice it's nice to revisit it in a way that's like i'm actually going to give you props that you deserve yeah after for years saying yeah, you know, I get it. Hard boiled, sure. Yeah. Now I'm like, oh wow, hard boiled, bitch. Wow. <laughs> and you can say it just like that and feel fine about it. Yeah. Because we're back in 1995. <laughs> yeah. It's a it's it's a hell of a movie. It's a hell of a movie. The last thing I will say, and I think we're gonna gonna wrap it up, is that I did notice I had forgotten. You surely are aware of this. Is that I always say the phrase. That guy knows where his bread is buttered, right? That's like that's what I say about, you know, people how to even articulate what that means is that guy, you know, knows the hand that feeds him so he doesn't bite it, right? You know, that this guy knows who his bosses are and he listens. I got that line from this movie. You know, is he that's goes right. is tequila goes, you know where your bread is buttered. And uh and it's completely like, oh, it's funny when there are phrases that I've said for so long and I forget where I got them from. I just completely forget what caused me to say that in the beginning. Anyway, <laughs> film, it's a time machine. Um, cinema is a time machine. Oh, oh, bring man. back the laser disc. That's all I'm saying. <laughs> I was trying to remember, and this will be the wrap up. No, do you remember? I remember Hard Boiled was a double VHS, wasn't it? No, not at all. No? No, no. I seemed I had that remember. single VHS. Okay. Yeah. It just seemed meaty to me at the time. It was a movie that seemed meaty to me. I remember when I was young seeing the running time, I was like, this is over two hours. Why the fuck is this this long? Now every goddamn stupid movie is two and a half hours long. You put on, you put on something like Dr. Sleep and it's like three hour runtime. Just every fucking movie is so long now. Yep. Yep. I hear you. I was just complaining about this on another podcast earlier this week. <laughs> but they don't feel substantial, and this one feels substantial. This is, this is a big sandwich when you eat hard-boiled. It's a hell of a big sandwich. But at the same time, very lean. The leanest two hours of a movie, I think, ever. Yeah. Yes. This and true. Seven Samurai are the only ones that feel short when they are much longer than you would think. Exactly. That's a very, a very, good, uh, very good point. Any final thoughts, John? Thanks for watching this with me. I this hope you can fun. tell it a yeah. ton of fun. Oh, yeah. This is a great idea. Uh, really seemed like an idea out of left field, but I you know, appreciate that. And I, I totally went with it. And I'm glad that we both had positive experience. I'm glad I didn't watch it again and think, oh, my God, it's embarrassing. I used to like this fucking movie. <laughs> 
mean, that would have been that would have been a tragedy. There, there's a few. There have been a few I movies, yeah, like that, that I've gone back and like, oof, I've liked this movie. Ones I've shown my kids and like, oof, this has this does not hold up. Guys, I apologize. <laughs> yeah, it's weird. You know what one I had that with recently, where we watched Terminator and he loved Terminator, and I was like, you know what, Terminator Two is even better. It's going to blow your mind. And I was like, wow, this sucks. And Parker was like, I thought you said this was better than the first one. I was like, <laughs> that was my memory of it, is that it was uh, better. I mean, it's got its virtues. <laughs> you but, have to understand the special effects at the time were, yeah. were really revolutionary. And That's what a cool kid was back then. He's not <laughs> fucking stupid like he seems now. Um yeah, it is. It is always weird when you run into those or ones that I'm just completely disconnected from. I'll occasionally see a movie I used to love and I don't and I watch it and I don't think it's bad, but it's just like I got nothing out of this. I'm just completely yeah. disconnected from this. Sure. Oh, sure. And and this was like this was a jolt. This was a jolt of, of electricity. This this yeah. really was like this and the killer. I, I should say yeah. I, I feel like I have been like given the killer a hard time just because I want to emphasize that you know i appreciate hardboard all the more but the killer is immaculate it is terrific i really appreciate it especially uh his relationship with the friend the ex-hitman who has the injured hand and you know goes out of his way that might be the best scene in the movie where he goes to collect his money and you know just gets so destroyed just gets you know shot and beaten and he just wants to get John his money, just get Chow his money. You know, it's <laughs> heartbreaking. It's a heartbreaking scene. There's great. They're all, I watched a better tomorrow killer and um, bullet in the head again. And they're all great. <laughs> they're all really, really fantastically great. That, that run of his, of his films is one of the great runs a director's had. It really is. I don't know it if, if it's blackjack is also great. Blackjack is also great. Hard boiled. <laughs> Throw some is props great. to Hard boy, uh, hard boiled is great. Hard target is also very enjoyable. John, why do they call Love you Chance? Day. Why do they call you Chance? Well, my mommy took one. Because my mama took one. Um, yeah. So John Wu, forever or certainly up till about 2002, and uh, and I really enjoyed these. Thanks for listening, yeah. everybody. Thanks for doing it with me, John. Thank you, Chris. 